Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You'll notice that I started with verse 22, and last week we also included verses 22 through 26 in our sermon text. And last week we, we read and examined this two-stage healing of the blind man in Bethsaida. At the hands of Jesus, he went from total blindness to partial sight, when he says, I see men, but they are like trees walking, total blindness to partial sight to full sight. And I said last week, that story of the the blind man being healed in two stages serves as a framework for most of what happens in Mark 8 through 10. The two-stage physical healing that the man experiences is a picture of the progressive growth in understanding that takes place in the hearts of people when they encounter Jesus. The main theme of Mark 8 through 10 is spiritual sight. Some that encounter Jesus are spiritually blind. Some have been given spiritual sight, but it is partial. What they see is blurry, and they have blind spots. So there's these two categories, total blindness and partial sight. They see, but there's blind spots. The problem with a blind spot is that you can't see it. You need to have the humility 
to acknowledge that you have blind spots, that what you see is not everything that there is to see. And you need to understand that what you do see is real and relevant, but it's not the total picture. When it comes to our blind spots, we need someone or something to point them out to us, to increase our field of vision. When you're driving, you look in the mirror, you look in the mirror, but then you need to turn your shoulder. You need to look and see what's over there before you change lanes. And you've probably experienced this. You're driving, you look in the mirror, look in the mirror, looks clear, you glance over your shoulder, and there's a dump truck. You're like, whoa! It's a good thing I'm not sliding over yet. We need to see. We need to increase our field of vision. And sometimes we need someone to point that out to us. Hey, look over there. Do you see this? Last week I picked on Dave Filzen, and this week I can really pick on him because he's down in the nursery. And uh, I, I shared that he's had troubles with his eyes, and he's had surgery on one of his eyes to correct that problem. And after surgery, his, he now sees 2020 out of that eye. And he was telling us at the elder meeting last week that he got to work and his desk, he realized that it was filthy, that it was this thick layer of grime on his desk. And he had never noticed it. He didn't have the clarity, he didn't have the depth of vision, the focus to see you really need to wipe off your desk. To him, it looked fine. And then he had the surgery in it, and, and he saw. He was blind until a doctor repaired his vision and reoriented him to reality. The, the surgery didn't create the dirt on his desk. It exposed the dirt on his desk. So the progression in last week's sermon from spiritual blindness to partial understanding to full understanding is a similar progression in this sermon, in this passage. But this morning, I want us to focus in on, on the confrontational nature of, of this, of, of the jarring, paradigm-shifting change that takes place when Jesus performs spiritual surgery on us? Jesus, he takes Peter and the rest of the disciples from blindness to partial sight to a clear and full understanding of who he is and what he's come to do. And he means for us to take that same progression. And you see in this passage that that's, that's jarring for Peter. It's un this is a surgery. This is uncomfortable. So let, let's look at, at this progression. Starting in verse uh, 20, 27 and 28. In, in verse 28, we see spiritual blindness. Jesus asks the disciples, who do people, who do the crowds say that I am? You've been walking with me now on, in my ministry. We've gone from village to village, town to town. People are encountering me. What are, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? And they answer him, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. It's the same thing we saw in chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, when uh, 
Herod was imprisoned by, or excuse me, John the Baptist was imprisoned by Herodias, that same list. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some one of the prophets. So back in Mark 6, Herod was one of those who thought that Jesus was the resurrected John the Baptist. So Herod, in his guilty conscience, he had murdered John the Baptist, and now his guilty conscience is telling him, this guy traveling around, performing miracles, teaching, he must be John the Baptist, come back from the dead, come back to haunt me, to avenge himself on me. Others are saying, this must be Elijah. So in Malachi chapter 3 and 4, Malachi predicts, prophesies that a day is coming when someone will come in the spirit of Elijah, will, will come to proclaim God's kingdom. People had assumed, people were looking forward to a day when someone would come and proclaim the day of the Lord. The, the time when God would come and establish his kingdom, destroy his enemies, renew creation, this day of the Lord, and Elijah would come to proclaim that day. And so they see Jesus, and they see what Jesus is saying and doing, and they think, we haven't seen a guy like this since Elijah. So this must be Elijah, because you, you remember the story of Elijah in 2 Kings? Elijah doesn't die. Elijah is caught up into heaven in, a, in, the, world, in the whirlwind. God, God grabs Elijah and brings him straight to heaven. And so people thought, well, if he went straight to heaven without dying, maybe God will send him back to proclaim. And so they said, this, this is him. This is, this is who it is. Others say, well, Jesus is clearly a prophet. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord. He's doing these miraculous works. So Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 18, Moses said, a prophet like me is going to arise. He's going to proclaim God's word. He's going to deliver the people. He's going to deliver his people from their enemies, from their oppressors. He's going to lead the people. He's going to speak to the people a word from God. He's going to be like me. That, that's what Moses did. Moses comes, delivers the people from Egypt, speaks on behalf of the Lord, leads the people in to the, to the doorstep of the promised land. And so they see Jesus, they're like, he, this is that prophet like Moses. So people have, been, have seen Jesus teaching, performing miracles, speaking with authority, acting with power. It's obvious that Jesus is someone important. And it's obvious that he is empowered by God to say and do these things. And even today, you'll see this. Jesus' approval rating is, is pretty high. People like Jesus in our culture. But which Jesus? Jesus, the wise teacher. Jesus, the praiseworthy moral example. Jesus, the great prophet, Jesus, the friend who wants to help me, that Jesus has a high approval rating. But it's a misidentification. If that's who you think Jesus is, you don't know who Jesus is. If you see Jesus' ministry, if you hear his words and see his works and you conclude, wow, a prophet, 
Wow, a, a wise teacher. Wow, Elijah. Wow, John the Baptist back from the dead. If that's your conclusion about Jesus, you are spiritually blind. These people have heard about Jesus. They've, they've read of him. They're aware of him, but they don't know him. They don't understand who he is or what he has done or how they are meant to respond to him. The Jesus that they are relating to, whether it's positively or negatively, is a caricature. They, have, they, they are acknowledging or rejecting a Jesus who doesn't exist. And so they, they need to be encountered with Jesus as he is. So these people... In verse 28, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, the people that identify Jesus that way, they don't get it. They have, they have a veil over their eyes. But the, the disciples are not in that crowd. The disciples see Jesus. The disciples understand who he is, sort of. Verse 29, verse 28, who do people say that I am? John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? Disciples, you've, you've been walking with me. You've seen me. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the whole group, Peter answers Jesus, you are the Christ. You're, you're the Christ. And, and we say, yes, finally, you get it. This is the first time in Mark, in Mark that the disciples give indication that they understand Jesus' identity. They, they, that his teaching, his actions has, have broken through to him, to them. They are not blind like those outside who have misidentified Jesus. Jesus has given them spiritual sight like he just did the blind man in, in Bethsaida. Their eyes have been opened. They see that Jesus is the Christ. Peter, again, speaking on behalf of the 12, Peter recognizes that Jesus is not only a prophet. He's not a man sent by God. He is God's appointed, predicted, long-awaited king. Christ means the anointed one the one set apart by God to come and reign over God's people and usher in his kingdom, to establish the kingdom of God physically on earth. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not Elijah come back. Jesus is not John the Baptist come back. Jesus is the king that had been promised. If you have your Bibles, look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2 speaks of this king, this Jewish king that is promised. Psalm 2, verse, verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh, and against his anointed Anointed, that's Messiah or Christ, same word. Christ means Messiah, Messiah means anointed. 
So the nations are raging. The nations have rejected Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of creation. They've rejected Yahweh and his anointed, his king, the one that, Jesus, the one that God has placed on the throne. They're against his anointed. Verse, and then you jump down to verse 6. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his fury and terrify them. Excuse me, speak to them in his wrath. Terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Do you see the, in verse 2, he identifies him as the anointed and in verse 6, he identifies him as the king. So the king and the anointed one are the same. The Jewish king is the one that God anoints. And there is this king that's going to reign forever, that's going to come and rule the earth with justice, destroy his enemies, exalt his people, give his people a safe place in the promised land forever, rule over them forever. And Peter has been reading his Bible. Peter knows Psalm 2. And Peter looks at Psalm 2, and then he looks at Jesus, and he says, that's you. You are the Christ. You're not just someone. You are the one. You're the one that we have been looking for. We have seen and heard enough to be persuaded that you are that guy. Finally, the Christ has come, and there you are. So, so Peter has partial sight. What he sees, he sees rightly. He's, he sees true reality about Jesus. Jesus really is the Christ. And look at how Jesus responds in verse 30. You are the Christ. Don't tell anybody. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Jesus commands his disciples to not proclaim him. That's really strange. And I, I've been skipping over this as we've been walking through Mark's gospel, but this is a theme. Maybe you've caught it. There are at least 11 times in Mark that Jesus commands someone not to speak about him or attempts to fly under the radar in some way. There's this, uh, a lot of commentators have pointed out there's this secret, secrecy or silence theme in Mark. So why would Jesus, Peter has rightly identified him, why would Jesus say, don't talk about it? Don't tell anyone that I am the Christ. It doesn't make sense on, on the surface. So look at verse 31. So verse 29, you are the Christ. Verse 30, strictly charges them to tell no one. And then verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Jesus switches his, ident his identifier from Christ, you've just confessed me as the Christ, now let me teach you about the Son of Man. 
So he switches his title. And Son of Man is Jesus' most common self-designation. It's, the, it's, it's how he identifies himself, labels himself more often than any other way in, in the Gospels. So that, that term, Son of Man, comes from the book of Daniel. So again, if you have your Bibles, Daniel chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14. Here's a prophecy that Daniel is given. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So that's kingly language again. This son of man is that king. And son of man is mentioned here in Daniel, but it's really not mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament. Whereas Christ is mentioned repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. There's lots of Old Testament passages referring to the Christ, to the anointed one, to the Messiah, to the king who was coming. So that title, Christ, or other titles for Jesus, the Son of God, Lord, Teacher, all of those titles, by the time you get to Jesus' day, in first century Judaism, these titles have massive baggage attached to them. There's a lot of expectations that have been put on these labels. A lot of extra ideas and beliefs have been smuggled in and built up around these titles. It, it would be like if, if 10 years from now, a presidential candidate says, that they want to make America great again, that right away your head goes to, oh, I know what they're talking about. Now, now, taken literally, essentially every candidate that would run for president would say, yeah, I do, I see a problem with America that I want to help solve, so I do want to, ma I do want to make America great. But if they choose that slogan, that slogan has a lot of baggage attached to it. They're not starting from scratch with that slogan. They're, they're saying something. They're stepping into a conversation that has been taking place. And it's a similar dynamic with that idea of the Christ. When Peter says, you are the Christ, there's all these biblical categories that emerge, but there's also these extra-biblical categories, these extra-biblical assumptions that have joined in with that. And so Jesus picks this less prominent title, Son of Man. There's less baggage, there's less context swirling around it. And so Je Jesus is able to fill in the details and give definition to, on his terms. Jesus hasn't come to fit their mold to fit their pre-existing assumptions. He has come on his terms to do what he deems to be good, to fulfill the Old Testament in its correct 
context. It's properly understood. And so Peter says, you are the Christ, and he's got this in mind. And Jesus says, that, that, that you have in mind, that's not who I've come to be. That's not, what I'm, that's not what I'm here to do. So let me teach you who I am. Let me teach you what I have come to do. So verse 31, he begins to teach them. I have come, what have I come to do? I've come to suffer. I've come to be rejected. I've come to be killed. I've come to rise again. You have rightly identified me as the Christ. Now let me teach you what that means. I am who I say I am. I have come to reign as the king long promised, but my path to glory on the throne runs through the cross. I, have, I am the anointed one. I have been set apart to reign as king, but the way that I'm going to reign as the king is by dying by being rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. And then I'm going to rise again before I reign. You need to understand that. And it says that he began to teach. And we're going to see this again. Jesus repeats this lesson in chapter 9 and in chapter 10. So we're going to return to this in the coming weeks. So, Peter has this partial sight. Jesus exposes a fuller picture of what that is. Jesus performs surgery on, on Peter and the disciples, says there's more that you need to understand here. And look at Peter's remaining blindness. Look at Peter's response, verse 32. Jesus said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's a bad idea. Don't rebuke Jesus. You're not going to come out well. If you find yourself in a position where you feel like you need to correct God, you need to correct Jesus, you are in trouble. You are not seeing as clearly as you think you are. So Peter pulls Jesus aside and said, no, 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 Jesus. You've got this all backwards. Surely this isn't what you mean to do. Jesus, you are the Christ, but not that kind of Christ. You're speaking like a madman. Who ever heard of a king suffering? What do you mean you'll be rejected? Stop this absurdity about being killed. You've come to reign as the king. If you die, you can't. I'm not even going to respond to the idea of you being raised from the dead. Jesus, knock it off. Get with it. Come to your senses. The Christ we have in mind would never do what you're describing. You have come to let loose on our enemies, to establish your kingdom, to bring us with you into power and comfort. Jesus, I have a plan for your life. And Jesus' response, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In Matthew chapter 16, Matthew also shares this account 
of Peter confessing the Christ and then getting it wrong. In, in Matthew's account, when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, Jesus responds and says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for this, this thing that you've just confessed, it comes from my Father who is in heaven. When you confess me as the Christ, you are, you are hearing from God. God is the one who reveals in your heart that I am the Christ, that I am your king. And now just a few breaths later, Peter is speaking from Satan. When Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, that's from the Spirit. That's from the Father. But then when Peter tells Jesus, you don't get it, you're not acting rightly, you're out of your mind, now he's speaking from Satan. He knows who Jesus is, but his assumptions about Jesus' priorities and mission are satanic, not spiritual. Jesus has exposed a blind spot in Peter and in the disciples, and Peter responds to the blind spot by telling Jesus, you're out of your mind. And Jesus tells him, you are out of your mind. You don't understand. Peter is looking at his life. He's looking at his moment in history. He's looking at the political and cultural realities around him. And Peter draws the conclusion that his greatest need and his people's greatest need is for the Psalm 2 Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, for that anointed one to come and let loose on his enemies. What I really need is my king to come and judge them, destroy them, overthrow them. And that, here's the Here's the kernel I want you to walk away with. That is one of the core self-deceptions of humanity. One of our biggest problems is that we think someone else is our biggest problem. My problems are out there with them. It starts right away, doesn't it? Adam and Eve's first deception is God is withholding from us. God is not trustworthy. God needs to change. And then after they eat of the fruit, what does Adam say? This woman you gave me, let loose on her. And, at, and then Eve says, the serpent deceived me. Of, do you know what's wrong with me, God? Him, her, and then Cain, God rejects Cain's sacrifice. He receives Abel's sacrifice. And so Cain says, Abel is ruining my life. And if I got Abel out of the way, I would be happy. Or we saw in chapter 6, Herod and Herodias. Herod and Herodias are living in this adulterous relationship. They have rejected God and his law. They're confronted by John the Baptist. John the Baptist looks at them and says, what you're doing is sinful. And their response, we know how to fix it. Let's cut off John's head. 
If we kill John, we can live happily in our sin. Or the Jews, ever since the Babylonian exile, they've been under the thumb of various pagan nations. And in Jesus' time, they're under the thumb of the Romans. And so they think, if we could overthrow the Romans and reassert our independence, everything would be better. If we had a king that just got rid of these Romans, our lives would improve. So if you don't understand that your deepest need and your biggest problem is you, if you don't understand that you're the, the thing that needs to be changed most in you is your brokenness, your sin, your deception, you're never going to understand Jesus' coming. In our fallen, sinful condition, when we set our minds on the things of man, like Peter's doing, in that condition, we want a Savior who will come and change other people, who will come and change our circumstances, who will remove obstacles in our path. But sitting over here in our blind spot is a dump truck barreling down on us, our sin, our hostility toward God, our antagonistic posture toward other people. So we're sitting there, we think, okay, here's what I need, God to change others, and Jesus says, look, do you know what's going to kill you? It's not the Romans, it's your sin. Jesus rips the blinders off Peter's understanding of himself and his situation. And you, you can see Peter just blinking painfully as the light floods in. Peter, you think your biggest problem is Caesar and his soldiers and his laws and his taxes? Your biggest problem is that you have a heart of stone and you need a heart of flesh and you don't have a donor. Your biggest problem is that you are under the wrath of a holy God and need someone to pay your penalty. Friends, this is our greatest need. Your biggest problem is not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not inflation or politics or social media or health issues. Your biggest problem, your greatest need is forgiveness renewal, restoration to God. And that is why Christ has come. That is what Jesus has come to do for us. Which means, in, in conclusion, last point, verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1, we need to carry our cross and see the kingdom of God. How do we show that our eyes are open and that we see clearly? We pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Someone who sees rightly, not just sees men like trees walking, but sees plainly, someone whose eyes have been spiritually opened, looks at the death and resurrection of Jesus looks at verse 31 when Jesus says, I've come to suffer 
and be rejected and be killed and then rise again, looks at that as not foolish, not absurd, but powerful and glorious. Not unthinkably absurd and stupid, but unthinkably beautiful and precious. So Peter hears that and he says, this is stupid. What are you talking about dying? But when your eyes are opened to your greatest need, when you see that you are dying, when you see that you are under the wrath of God and deserve punishment, and you hear that you have a king who will die for you in your place, a king who will take away your debt, a king who will rise to new life and bring you with him into new life, that's good news. That's beautiful. So we gladly proclaim Christ crucified. We rejoice that we have a king who died and is alive. We declare that he did that for us and that we love him for it. The disciples, they didn't fully understand that until it happened. And I get it. It's strange. It's unexpected. They didn't understand until it had happened. We have the benefit that we see the whole story. We get it because we know how the story ends. And because we have seen Christ take the cross for us, go to the tomb for us, and now raised to new life to live forever as a promise to us, we can live cross-shaped lives. I can tell that someone has understood the gospel when they look at the cross and they say, I love that I have a Savior who died for me. I love that I have a Savior who is now alive, who has taken the penalty for my sin. And I can tell when someone gets it when they say, I want to follow him in that type of life. I want to give up my life to know him and to help other people know him. When you get it, when God removes the blinders, you no longer need to live for yourself. You no longer need to live for self-preservation, for self-exaltation, for comfort and fame and glory. You deny yourself. You no longer need to say, I want to save my life but rather you see your life as an offering to give to God. So we take our crosses and we follow Jesus to Calvary. When Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, he's not going to the country club. He's going to Calvary. Pick up your cross and die with me. Pour yourself out. Give yourself over. We lay down our lives for our families, for one another, for those who don't know Christ, and even for our enemies. We don't make decisions based on what will enrich us, 
what will give us worldly goods, what will keep us physically sound. We make decisions based on what will exalt Jesus, what will make Jesus known, what will please Jesus, what will bless others, what will help others see and trust Jesus. We say with Paul in in Galatians 6, when we get the cross, we say the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I have a cross-shaped life. The cross is not foolishness to me. The cross is power and glory and beauty. Let's pray. Father, we cannot see this on our own strength. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To, to, Jews, it is a stumble, to Jews, it's folly. To Greeks, it's a stumbling block. The world looks at the cross and says, that's madness. Why would you follow someone who suffered? Why would you follow someone who was rejected? Why would you follow someone who was killed? But we see the cross as your means of taking away our sin, removing your wrath, satisfying the justice that that your law requires. We see that and we see that we will live truly happy truly blessed lives when we take up our crosses and follow Jesus. In him we pray, amen.